Hello, I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the May 26th episode of DKP Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Today's learning objective is to discuss features of the B1617 SARS-CoV-2 variant. This educational activity is supported by independent medical educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and Eli Lilly and Company, as well as in-kind support by DKB Med LLC. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Awater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Allwater, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Faith. Uh, so we have some questions and uh, the first one, uh, ready to go? Sure, first I thought I would show you this learner question. They asked, can you please talk about Indian variants and the vaccine effectiveness if there is any to these Indian variants? Right, so uh, Faith, I, I think one of the things that the number of us try to articulate is that when we're speaking of the so-called variants of concern regarding SARS-CoV-2, we, we don't give it the geographic name and variant. We sort of say the variant first described in India, because to be honest, we have no idea if the uh, variant truly evolved um, in that particular location. Just so happens that's where the sequencing efforts may have first described it. So, the one uh, that probably is most prominent is a B1617 variant. And the 617 is interesting. We don't know a lot about it yet, but it appears to already account uh, for over 50% of infections in India, it appears, and maybe up to a third of the deaths due to COVID. Uh, the WHO earlier in May did label it the variant of concern, the fourth one, so it, it deserves attention. But at the moment, there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, first, uh, I think it's labeled a variant just because it has appeared uh, in a number of countries, at least 44 by my last count from last week, at least from uh, reports. But whether it's more transmissible or more virulent is still being worked out. So uh, I, I think we have more experience with some of the other variants of concern and we'll know more soon. Uh, what, what does appear to be hopeful though is at least some preliminary reports about uh, vaccine effectiveness. They're small and preprint studies, but uh, there is a, a suggestion that uh, people that have had a good response to Pfizer, Moderna, mRNA vaccines for COVID, their sera does appear to neutralize uh, this variant of concern uh, first described in India, the 617. So uh, more to come on this, but uh, hopefully another reason to be immunized. Okay, and this is our next question. Do you think that booster immunizations will be required? 
So this is a, a frequent question because everyone wants to know uh, whether you need to you know, get in line for another shot down the road. I think this will be variable depending on what vaccine uh, you may have uh, had. We do know that some of the traditional inactivated vaccines that are frequently the ones that have been developed in China don't have very long-lived durable responses. The mRNA vaccines are a bit less clear. There are some that think there will definitely need boosters, others not as clear. So uh, the reality, I think, um, is that only time will tell. And what we'll be looking for are breakthrough infections in people who have been immunized. We do know that at least people that have relatively robust immune responses, that uh, people are protected for at least six months. We know that from Moderna uh, vaccines. And, and of course, as more time passes, we'll be able to assess that further. I don't think there'll be a rush for boosters, uh, gratifyingly. And we uh, also know that at least for the moment, most of the variants of concern, the mRNA vaccines appear to produce sufficient immunity. So, so far, I think we're benefiting. And one of the reasons you're seeing uh, declining uh, infection rates in some countries, especially Israel, and, and still largely even in the United States. So um, I think this is uh, all hopeful and uh, stay tuned on that one, Dave. Okay, thank you very much. And the next learner question asks, how can I encourage parents and their 12 years and older students to get vaccinated in a school where it's a struggle to get them the annual flu shot? Yeah, a perpetual issue for adolescents who are often the least well immunized because they're not getting routine doctor's visits where they may be uh, addressed uh, as to whether they need uh, something like influenza immunization. Uh, I think there is pivoting now in many states from mass immunization sites for getting uh, vaccines into the uh, doctor's offices where they could be administered more routinely. That would be helpful. And if there is vaccine hesitancy, uh, some of the things that I uh, strongly recommend is first uh, discuss uh, immunization with a trusted resource, and I would include your pediatrician. Um, uh, have your uh, questions answered there. There's already a strong evidence, and of course now uh, EUA decision from the FDA for the Pfizer mRNA vaccine already has emergency use authorization from the Food and Drug Administration. That's based on uh, initial information that suggests it's a very effective. Uh, there were no cases in any of the immunized students compared to those who did acquire it if they had placebo shots, and it appeared safe. Uh, I think there's little reason not to get it. Um, talking with your uh, pediatrician, a trusted resource, I would strongly recommend. Uh, my uh, neighbor here um, has a 12-year-old daughter who has been in and out of school because of uh, COVID contacts and need to isolate or quarantine. And I think that's very frustrating for students. Uh, the 12-year-old was so looking forward to getting uh, a vaccine so they wouldn't have to worry about isolating or quarantine. So I think the vaccine has lots of attributes for uh, improving uh, lifestyle, also safety within families, because 
Although children tend not to get as seriously ill, they still can. And of course, they could transmit it to family members that may not respond as well to immunization, uh, perhaps the very elderly, perhaps uh, people that have severe health problems or suppressed immune systems. So, uh, you know, much of the rationale here uh, holds for children. I would say um, one a particular frequent question is about fertility. And there's absolutely no compelling evidence that uh, the vaccine at all affects fertility. Indeed, there have already been studies showing no impact on pregnancy. Uh, and even in the Pfizer trial, 12 people in the vaccine arm uh, were pregnant and 11 in the placebo. So no sense that uh, the vaccine had uh, influenced uh, the ability to get pregnant or maintain pregnancy. So please don't um, use that, which is such a frequent uh, issue in many of the social media aspects. That's a complete mistruth about uh, COVID-19 vaccines. Okay, and this is another question. For patients with mild or moderate COVID-19, is there any benefit to famotidine? So Faith, famotidine is a H2 blocker. It's used to help suppress acid in the stomach. And uh, you know, there's been some in vitro and mixed retrospective information to suggest it may be helpful. I think like many repurposed drugs, I don't hold out high hopes that test tube studies will actually turn out to have clinical benefit. There are prospective trials currently underway, uh, one um, in uh, a New York health system right now looking at mild outpatient COVID-19 and randomizing whether people take famotidine or not. So I think we'll, we'll have better quality information than some of the mixed retrospective uh, information. But for the moment, I would not make any recommendations uh, about using famotidine for COVID-19. Okay, next question. Where can rural residents go for monoclonal antibody therapy if indicated? So the monoclonal antibody uh, therapies, which remain uh, investigational, but have emergency use authorization, uh, depend in certain states on how they've decided to distribute them. Uh, I can give you an example here in Maryland, there are dedicated infusion centers, uh, but certainly where populations are lower, uh, they may not be necessarily nearby. So my usual recommendations are that these drugs do need uh, a physician or healthcare provider referral. And I would familiarize yourself with the nearest referral uh, centers uh, that can evaluate your patient and potentially arrange for a monoclonal antibody infusion. I think they uh, have a tremendous role for patients who may be at high risk for severe COVID or hospitalization. And it would be worth the trip uh, to even spend hours in the car to get the infusion if someone is at high risk. Because the way I look at it, if you live in a rural area and actually become severely ill, trying to get to a healthcare facility may be as difficult as trying to uh, go somewhere for an infusion center. But by all means, look at your state or local health departments under the COVID-19 information, and I'm certain you'll have uh, uh, the information necessary to find out the nearest locations for the monoclonal infusion, which may be in an emergency department, could be at uh, localized health centers specializing in uh, referral or special standalone facilities. 
Okay, great. Thank you very much. And our next question is, is there a standard accepted definition for quote-unquote long COVID? Uh, so, Faith, I'm not sure there is yet. Um, the Centers for Disease Control, uh, for example, highlights that um, uh, a, a high percentage of people may have symptoms beyond four weeks. Uh, for example, most post-infectious syndromes, such as after Lyme disease or even infectious mononucleosis, we tend to wait uh, at least six months before thinking they truly have a post-infectious uh, a fatigue syndrome or something that may be uh, causing a, a subjective musculoskeletal pain or brain fog or so on. And of course, some people who are ill uh, continue to have respiratory symptoms, cough, uh, uh, easy uh, shortness of breath uh, induced with minimal exertion and so on and so forth. Uh, so I think this will become a little more standardized. We're still uh, coming to grips with uh, some of the post-infectious uh, complications. And uh, I, I, no doubt this kind of area does need uh, better uh, development and guidance. And I, I think this will be forthcoming soon. Okay, and the next question, do we know who is more susceptible to long COVID or how to ameliorate risk of long COVID? Well, uh, I'll answer the second part. The risk of long COVID is very easy. Go ahead and get a vaccine. Uh, you know, prevention is key here. And I emphasize that especially to younger people who may not think they're at risk uh, for uh, having uh, bad complications of COVID. Uh, one study, for example, found that 33% of non-hospitalized uh, people, often younger, didn't return to baseline health within four weeks of um, uh, COVID-19 infection. So, you know, I, I think there's... Um, uh, a lot we still need to understand uh, about this uh, and who's more or uh, less susceptible. Uh, traditionally, a lot of post-infectious syndromes are more common in women, and it tends to be more in um, uh, women who are under the age of 60. Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll see how some of the studies uh, uh, progress to help define this, but I would just emphasize that uh, immunization is really one of the most important ways. And I, and I think this is really uh, a selling point that's not been as well voiced about immunization to avoid uh, these symptoms that are can be very bothersome long-term and debilitating for certain people. Okay, and another question is, are there any effective treatments besides monoclonal antibodies for patients with mild or moderate COVID-19? Faith, so there's been a lot of interest in repurposed drugs, for example, exactly for people with mild to moderate COVID. Uh, monoclonal antibodies, though, remain uh, the only uh, therapy currently under uh, EUA uh, for outpatients. Uh, there are a number of clinical trials ongoing, and indeed, uh, at least one trial from Argentina, published in the New England Journal um, uh, a few months ago, showed that for people over 65, that convalescent plasma of high titer received less than three days after onset of symptoms significantly reduced the progression to severe COVID-19. But for the moment, uh, convalescent plasma is not available in the United States and we're using uh, the uh, monoclonal uh, antibody cocktails. There have been two um, uh, more phase two type trials that have looked at budesonide, which is an inhaled corticosteroid, which appears to be 
uh, helpful at blunting progression to illness. Um, and uh, I don't, you know, I think most of us are waiting for a phase three trial, but especially in some uh, lower resourced uh, countries such as India, uh, this has been picked up as a potential recommendation uh, for people that uh, have some progressive illness and can't quite get into a hospital and so on. So that's possible. There are oral uh, antivirals currently under study, um, some of which uh, preliminary information shows some promise, uh, but those are probably months away from us uh, really seeing uh, convincing clinical information. So for the moment, uh, for most people, the emphasis is on either monoclonal antibodies or if you don't fit criteria, that is outlined in the EUA for them, then it's supportive care. Of course, if you become more ill or shortness of breath, uh, heading straight to an emergency department is, is highly important for evaluation. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Dr. Allwater, thanks again for your time. Yeah, thank you, Faith, and thank you, as always, for uh, listening to this uh, presentation.